All right, if we can open our Bibles up to James chapter 4, starting with verse 13. James 4, 13 through 17. We are continuing our rich, really just rich series in the gospel, in the book, excuse me, of James. And I have profited so much from this and so much wisdom. And I trust God will once again speak to us wisdom that we so desperately need. Well, today's message is entitled, No Boasting About Tomorrow. Let me now read the Word of God from James 4, starting with verse 13. God addressing us. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I do ask this morning that you would unfold your word to us. Just picture a scroll that's being unfolded. Lord, that you just open up your word to us. That you would deliver your word to our hearts. So, Lord, we ask that you would shed light this morning into every darkened heart. That we may see, not only our hearts, but see you as Lord and as Savior. So, Lord, we trust you this morning. Help us to trust you with our very plans with our very thoughts, with the very future which you hold in your hands. Amen. Amen. Well, in the capital city of the closed nation of North Korea stands what would be, what would be the tallest hotel in the world. Construction of this 105-story skyscraper began in 1987, and it was to be completed only two years later, in 1989, in time for the World Festival for Youth and Students, in order to show off North Korea's business enterprise, to see what a communist nation could do and to build. At least that was the plan, according to the revered eternal president, as he is called, Kim Il-sung. But there was just one problem, actually many problems. The eternal president died in 1994. The country ran out of money, according to its own government, and the construction proved faulty. Roughly $750 million later, and 105 stories later, what is now known as the Hotel of Doom is still incomplete. One massive, empty 
concrete shell dominating the skyline of the Capitol. A monument to one leader's, one country's presumption, and may we say, arrogance. Well, in our passage today, James is talking about avoiding our own monuments of presumption, like that of the Hotel of Doom. You say, I can handle it, Lord. I got it all figured out. And so we try to build our own dreams, monuments to our selfish ambition and self-sufficiency. So we take that job. We make that purchase. We enter that relationship. We make that move. And another monument to presumption is built. And all that's left is an empty shell of a relationship, a job you can't complete, and a move that you can't undo. Friends, I believe this morning that God is calling us not only to avoid such monuments of presumption, but he wants to raise to the ground every empty concrete shell or building that we are attempting to construct in our own strength and by our own will. Why? Oh, please catch this. So that we would be set free, set free to aggressively, ambitiously dream and build upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Depending on God, not presuming upon God. And that is really the theme, the proposition for this morning from James chapter 4, 13 through 17. That in our planning, that we would depend on God, not presume upon God. But you know what? To do that, we must first learn the language, the speech of presumption, and thus the hard attitude behind it. And to do that, let's turn again to verse 13 of James 4, where James says to us, Come now. In other words, get with it. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Do you hear it? Do you hear the speech of presumption here in verse 13? See, James is not railing here against all forms of planning as if that were evil. James here is addressing those in his own church, those who presumably were Christians, Christian merchants or businessmen, you might say, who had all their business plans mapped out. They had it all figured out as if they were independent of God, as if they were autonomous. The reasoning probably went something like this. Let's see, we're going to launch the Apple iPad in April of 2010. We're going to leave out the video camera, though, in the first generation, so we have something to upgrade for the second generation. And then in May, we're going to go global with the iPad. And then in June, we're going to launch the iPhone 4G. We're going to start in the U.S., we're going to go global, and we're going to make gazillions of dollars. And with Apple-like precision and marketing, they undertook their plans but they undertook them without reference to the will of God, without seeking him. In other words, they got out the permanent marker and made their plans as if they would happen, and they boasted about it. 
So a little parenthetical statement. God is not against business plans here this morning. I'm not saying, hey, Corey said he's opposed to Apple. That's not the point. James is addressing those who took pride in their perceived ability to chart out their own future and to boast about it. In assuming to know the future, they were in fact presuming to be God. You see, presuming upon God is ultimately a futile attempt to play God, much as Al spoke about last week. But before we jump all over these rich traders and their arrogance, you know what? Humility is in store for each and every one of us, is in order. We are susceptible to the same thinking. Whether or not you are a businessman or a businesswoman, you may not be an entrepreneur, you may not be a CEO of a company, but as rich Christians, we can too easily assume that profit and God's will go together as if they're one and the same. Of course, God wants me to have a high-paying job. Of course, God wants me to have a healthy retirement. Of course, God wants me to have that house on the lake. Of course, he does. And we can subtly shift from planning and praying for God's will to be done and begin to start praying that God would bless our plans, assuming that our plans are God's plans. I mean, the plans sound so good. Oh, I just loved Monica's word this morning. Wasn't it helpful? So we start getting out the permanent marker. Forget the pencil. Forget the sketching. We're going right to the permanent ink. Because we think we got a plan to figure it out. Not just in regards to our finances, but get that plan figured out in getting that spouse, in getting that job, in getting into that school, or having three children, or how many you may want, or adopting that child, securing that retirement. And so we begin to talk to ourselves, much like the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. I can't help but think if James was not thinking about the parable that his brother Jesus gave in Luke 12. Let me read it to you. It's the parable often called the parable of the rich fool. fool. From Luke 12, verse 18, and I'll read verse 19. The rich fool speaking. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Does that language sound familiar to you? It's the very language that we may speak. But we see right here in James 4, verse 13. Instead of in James 4, 13, instead of I, it's we. But I think the point's the same. Look again at verse 13 of James 4. We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is saying, warning, warning. Such planning and speech 
betrays a presumption, an arrogance, a covetousness, which God does not tolerate. And then we see in that parable, the ritual, the next verse, verse 20 of Luke 12. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In James 4.14 says, likewise, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So here's the question, church, that we are faced with this morning. How do we guard or how do we mitigate against such presumption? James, in this text, gives us a reality check, an antidote to presumption. When he says in verse 14, yet you do not know. You do not know. You may know every World Cup bracket and statistic. You may know every Jeopardy game show question. You may know how many minutes and seconds to boil the perfect egg. You may know how to clean up the oil slick that is slithering across the Gulf of Mexico. But you do not know what tomorrow holds. You do not know what this very minute holds. You don't even know what I'm about to say in this next minute. You see, it's often and only with unfortunately, through a brush with our own mortality or that shocking news that the truth, the obvious truth, is driven home. And that is our complete inability to control the future. One spring evening, I believe it was 1999, I left the house dressed in my basketball uniform. I was driving to my first basketball game of the spring season. I never made it there. When in my car, I crossed the intersection near my house, the intersection that I had crossed hundreds of times, I failed to see the oncoming car in the blinding, setting sun. I was T-boned on the driver's side, right where I was, by a car going at least 45 miles per hour. The driver's seat that I was sitting in snapped in two. My car ricocheted against the median, then the curb like a pinball. My car was totaled. My ribs were cracked. I was in shock. But my life was spared. I still can see and, yes, hear the woman in the car that hit me. My windows were rolled up. And her windows are rolled up too. But I can see her face today and I can hear the scream. You see, suddenly everything slowed down. My senses were heightened and intensified. And I have lived that moment a hundred times since then. Perhaps you have had such a life-threatening experience where life almost like went into slow motion. You know what I'm talking about? Slow motion. As you came face to face with your own mortality, you had one thing planned, and suddenly God brought all those plans, or that plan, to a screeching halt. James right here, oh, friends, he is slowing us down. Right here in verse 14. 
He is giving us a divine reality check, reminding us that we're not in control. Oh, may we heed this lesson while we're yet still alive. Obviously, I lived to see another day. But how many haven't? How many flowers and crosses would be planted in that median in your neighborhood in the next week or two? And that leads to the next point James is making. We do not know what tomorrow will hold. The uncertainty of life. And secondly, the brevity and frailty of life. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I went to college in a desert climate in California. Above the outdoor cafes, there would be these hoses, these mister hoses that would be strung along the awning as you sat below them at the cafe. And I remember the mist pouring out, coming out of the hoses. And by the time they would waft down to me sitting at the table, they would be gone, evaporated in the arid heat. When you celebrate 4th of July next Sunday, and perhaps you'll break out the sparklers for you or your children, and they'll do those little curly cues with the sparklers. I want you to remember, our lives are like those sparks. Here for one second, gone the next. You see, Scripture is replete with such warnings to us. God wants to remind us of the brevity of life. We read in Psalm 103, 15 and 16. There's so many verses like this. Let me read 103. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Psalm 35, 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. This is the message which our culture does its best to avoid thinking about or talking about, in some cases, even denying. But perhaps no one in this day and age has spent more money in effort to deny mortality than a man named Arakawa, a Japanese-born artist and architect. Arakawa, along with his wife, Madeline Ginz, touted a philosophy they called reversible destiny. They made headlines back in 2008 for their Bioscleave house. This was a bizarre, I believe, house located on Long Island that said, if you lived in it, could keep you young. According to the New York Times, the house came equipped with uneven floors, oddly placed windows, and a wild array of colors. This really was a bizarre house, if you go look at it on the internet. You see, Arakawa, with his what he called architecture against death, claimed he could ward off death. Well, there was only one slight problem. The same one the eternal president of North Korea suffered. Arakawa was mortal. He died last month, the month of May, at age 73, right on schedule according to the actuary tables. As of this week, I checked it. The banner on their website still reads, 
we have decided not to die. Nice try. Crazy? Yes. But how many of us think that we have the ability somehow to ward off death by either staying young or simply, or perhaps for most of us, simply not thinking about death? James here is giving us a reality check. Perhaps you are here this morning, you are young, you are a teen, and you are a youth. Oh, I know, all this talk can sound so distant, so premature. It's like you're just crying woof when there is no woof. You may say it, you may not say it out loud, but you know what? You think this. I'll do my thing. I'll live my life on my terms. And then I'll get right with God. You know, like so-and-so did. But you know what? You're not so-and-so. And you're not God. If you've had these thinkings or you're living in such a way as this, I would plead with you. Learn from the word of God as opposed to learning the hard way yourself experientially. If you live without reference to God and his will, you will not come out unscathed. And you may not even come out alive. And then what will you do on the day in which you meet your maker and your judge? So what should our response be, church, to these stark words in James 13 and 14? I believe it's that of Psalm 90, verse 12, a familiar verse to many of us, where it says, so teach us to number our days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. What does a heart of wisdom sound like? What is this heart of wisdom that Psalms is speaking about? Oh, I believe it sounds a lot like verse 15, right here in James 4. Let's read it. Instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Oh, it's this little phrase right here, church. If the Lord wills, that forms the heart of James, and that's God's word to us this morning. I want to take a little time to unpack this powerful little phrase, if the Lord wills. Your notes, A, if, if, if the Lord wills. This is a statement of humility. In light of the fact that you or I don't know what tomorrow holds, in light of the fact that you or I cannot control tomorrow, in light of the fact that you or me may not even be here tomorrow, God is calling us to a life of utter dependence upon him. This little phrase, you ought to say, communicates an ongoing, a continuance in the verb tense here. You see, it's not a little tack-on phrase. So what are you doing this Wednesday, Corey? I'm going to home group, if the Lord wills. And afterwards, I'm going home, if the Lord wills. What are you doing this weekend? Going to the beach, if the Lord wills. No, no, it's not a little tack-on phrase, if the Lord wills. It is a worldview. It is an attitude. If the Lord wills, knowing that I cannot make it happen apart from God and his will. If if, if, is a recognition of our complete inability to chart our own future, an inability to fulfill our own plans, an inability to bear fruit apart from God. 
it's an internalization of John chapter 5, Christ's words, when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. Zip. Zilch. Nothing. Zero. Goose egg. You get the picture. Nothing. You know what? I hope you find that freeing this morning. You get this point, and you have dealt a fatal blow to presumption. But, but true humility doesn't stop there. It's not, well, if the Lord wills. No, humility marches on. See, humility isn't about resignation nor passivity in the face of our own ineptitude or an inability to control tomorrow. You see, humility is in submission. It's an active trust in the one who knows and controls tomorrow. I think we can too easily miss this point. You see, humility prays as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, knowing that God's will will be done. So it's not just if the Lord wills, it's if the Lord wills. The Lord wills. Notice the wording here. James could have said, if God wills, that would have been appropriate. Actually, a very commonplace phrase during James' time. But rather, he tweaks it. He he says, not just God, he says, if the Lord wills, if your master wills, if the sovereign one wills. I believe he's talking to Christians like you and me. He said, if the Lord, your master, wills. What we have right here is the very enthronement of God, of Christ Christ himself in our very hearts. As we plan. You see, it is Christ, the risen one, who is Lord. It is Christ who controls all of history. It is Christ who is bringing all things to its appointed end. It is God who is going to consummate history through Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation 5. I love this passage. It is Christ who holds the scroll of all of God's eternal plans and decrees. And it's Christ and Christ alone who can execute and will execute God the Father's plans perfectly in his church, in your life, in my life, with permanent ink. Let us read Revelation 5. just want you to hear the words. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6. It's a vision of heaven given to the Apostle John. And we read this description of what he saw in this vision. He said, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And break its seals. And no one. That's not you. Not me. No one in heaven or on earth. Or under the earth. Was able to open the scroll. Or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is this lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered? Who is the one who is worthy to open the scroll? In other words, who is the one who is worthy to execute God's plans perfectly? Oh, we're told in verse 6, it is the lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, he conquered sin. He conquered death. It says in Colossians 2 that he disarmed all the rulers and all the authorities, that he may show himself as a supreme ruler of the world. The supreme ruler of the world. So that God's plans, God's promises, and God's will will be done. You see, if the Lord wills, is not some glib statement. It's not a superstitious saying. It's not a manipulative formula to get what you want. It's a statement of submission and trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose will will be done. So what difference does this make, church, in our planning and view of the future? Oh, it makes all the difference. Everything. Put humility, that if clause, if the Lord wills, put humility and join it with the clause, the Lord wills. Put it together, humility and submission and act of trust, and you get sparks. Like the two ends of the battery cable, the positive and the negative, bring them together. You get sparks, and you get fire. You get a Christian on fire, a praying Christian, a Christian with plans, a Christian with dreams, Surrender to the Lord's. A Christian who is not confident in his own abilities, but is utterly confident in Christ's ability to fulfill his purposes in you. A Christian of courage. A Christian who is not afraid of bad news, but one who trusts in the Lord. Do you know such Christians? Do you want to be such a Christian? I know I do, and I believe you do as well. But perhaps this phrase, if the Lord wills, has not been in your vocabulary, your heart. It certainly hasn't been in your prayers. You're just going day to day. You haven't prayed about tomorrow. You haven't prayed about next week. You haven't sought the will for the future. You're just going on living life. If the Lord wills, it's not part of your speech. That's the case. Perhaps you fall into one of the two camps this morning. I just want to put it all together. Camp number one. Perhaps you feel this morning like God is opposing you at every step, with every plan, and there is no peace. You find yourself striving and chafing against God. When you look at the past, you know what you see? You see a bunch of half-baked, incomplete, dead monuments to your own presumption. Well, if that is the case, God's word for you is found in James 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, we could put, therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let me explain. In the Phillips translation of verse 16, it goes something like this. You get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future. 
with such confidence? Well, first of all, I think you know your confidence is ill-founded, as we've already established this morning. But secondly, and most importantly, your boasting, your arrogance, your presumption is evil. It's evil. It's the pride of the devil that you can live and chart a future independent of God. But you may say to me this morning, but Corey, I'm, I'm not trying to live independently of God. I know God. I speak to him regularly. I want you to hear this as well. See, to, to live independently of God doesn't always mean ignoring God. But it may mean trying to use God to manipulate him to fulfill your own dreams. I'm going to date myself here, but going back to a movie in 1989 called The Field of Dreams. Remember Ray, the novice farmer, lives out in Iowa in cornfields, and he hears a voice. That's become a famous line in the movie. The line was this. If you build it, he will come. If you build a baseball field in this here cornrows, he will come. We'll later find out that he is his father of his youth and many more as well. How easily and arrogantly we can do the same. If I do this or do that, he will come. He being God, surely God will then bless me. And so we embark on our own plans and dreams. But God is not Lord. God is is just your do boy. If this is so, the implied reasoning of James' logic in verse 16 is this. Confess and repent of your arrogant boasting and presumption. But you know what? James doesn't stop there. Look at verse 17. James is not just saying, stop boasting, stop presuming. He is saying, do what is right. So what is right? Oh, what is right is stop presuming and stop boasting. It also means this. Start living a life fully dependent upon God. In other words, humble yourself. In the words of Gary Thomas, it's humility that acts like a filter, saving us from the tyranny of grossly unrealistic expectations that everyone and everything should bend our way. See, this morning, God wants to free you from the tyranny of presumption that everything and everyone should or will bend your way. Why? Please catch this. So that we'll do what is right, depending on God. So that you may be free to exercise a faith that pleases God in your plans and in your dreams. A faith that says, if the Lord wills, and you really mean it. For others, you may fall in the second camp. It's not so much that you're making arrogant plans, at least intentionally. You're just not making any plans at all. You need to start planning. Start dreaming about tomorrow. Start letting God shape your plans and ambitions. But you say, Corey, I no longer plan or allow myself to hope in the future. Oh, I've been wrong. I've been burned so many times. But you've equated this lack of faith with humility. 
And it's not humility. To quote Dave Harvey in his new book, Rescuing Ambition, he says, Humility should never be an excuse for inactivity. Our humility should harness our ambition, not hinder it. Talking about your dreams for God isn't proud. It's essential. It's essential. So what's the right thing to do? What would God have us do? Verse 17. Once again, it's plan. It's dream. Depend upon him. Titus 2.14 says this. That Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He redeemed you. You may be zealous for good works. What are those good works? It's his revealed will. What we've been studying here in the book of James. It's works that Christ has specifically prepared for you to do, for you and for me, for all those in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 says this, that God saved us, yes. But what did he save us for? And two, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had prepared good works for you before you were even alive, before you had breath. God had good works for you to do, to glorify him. Isn't that encouraging? You see, if you're to walk in good works, you must first aspire to good works. Good works don't just happen spontaneously. At least in my life, they don't. I must aspire and plan to do good works. The good works that God has prepared for me. Isn't this freeing? See, what we see here is we have nothing to lose, do we? Because of the good work done by Christ in his perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross, we are now freed and saved to do good works. To do good works. That includes planning for good works. We no longer need to live for God's approval. We live from his approval. Set free to do good works, to plan, to dream. His dreams. So we can say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Not in some somber voice. Well, yeah, if the Lord wills, I guess I'll do this or do that. No, if the Lord wills, we will live. We will do this. We will do that. You see the difference? That's a godly ambition. That's dependence upon God. That's a faith that pleases God. To quote John Stott, he says, ambitions for self may be quite modest, but ambitions for God, however, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. Ah. As a leadership team here at Palm Vista, we just finished our yearly planning retreat. Plans are set in place, as many of you are aware, to plant a Spanish-speaking church in 18 months. Can I just say... <laughs> There's nothing modest about that, given our church size and resources. But I believe that it's faith. Will it happen just as planned? Probably not, but that's okay. But I believe it's a faith, not presumption. We've been waiting and praying, seeking the Lord, seeking counsel, seeking the right man for the time. 
And now we're going to go for it. Independence upon God in faith, knowing that Jesus Christ is the only one who can do it. He's the only one who can build his church. Isn't that freeing? So what are your plans personally, for your family, for the future? What are you trusting God for? The early Methodist used to sign every letter they wrote with the initials DV. Stood for Deo Valente. In Latin meaning God willing. God wants me. God wants you to write DV or God willing or, or in the James word Lord willing over everything precious in your life right now. Every plan, every dream. Over that class or school you hope to get into. Over that job offer or business you hope to start. Over that house you are seeking to rent or to buy. Over that mission trip that you hope to make. Over that vacation or even anniversary trip that you've dreamt of taking. Over that book that you hope to publish or song that you hope to record. Over that money that you hope to give away. Over that family member that you are witnessing to. Interesting to note that for years, the North Korean government denied the Hotel of Doom's very existence. They actually manipulated official photographs in order to remove the structure, excluding it from all printed maps of the capital. But no matter how hard they tried, its looming presence in the skyline could not be denied by the people. This morning, God is calling you to acknowledge the truth, to face the facts of any arrogant presumption in your life or any faithless timidity. Don't gloss it over, church. Don't airbrush it. Don't just move on. Repent. Turn from that sin, for it is sin and it is evil. Repent. And let God fill you this morning with a newfound faith and zeal. And have him turn those monuments of presumption into ground zero of God's grace and faith. That he would demolish yours and mine, our puny, selfish, ambitious plans. And in their place, give you dreams born of a radical dependence upon God, that the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, including your plans. Let us pray and invite the worship team to come forward. Oh, Lord. We pause now to let your word have its settled, intended effect on our hearts. So Lord, now as we sing, all glory to you. May we mean it. For every plan, every dream, we surrender them to you now. That they may be yours. That our dreams may be yours. So Lord, we humbly submit to you of our arrogant, our boastful ways. And we say you 
alone are God. You alone are Lord. Amen.